Well, good morning, Four Corners. It's a blessing to be here gathered with you to worship our King. Uh, We recognize this morning that there might be some visitors among us, so we want to welcome you here. We, We pray that you will see Christ glorified through this service, as I think we already have, through the singing of praises to Him and through prayer, uh, that Christ will become more real to you today, more precious to you through the time that we have together in this service. And I also want to welcome the Canes uh, who are with us today. We're going to be having a luncheon later to, uh, there they are over there. Uh, we're going to, everyone now is looking. Um, we're going to uh, have a luncheon after the service. It'll be an opportunity for, for them to share with us what they are doing as missionaries in Honduras with the La Seba Bible Seminary. And they are partnering, among other ministries, with that seminary there, with a gentleman named Raul, a, a local man there who is overseeing this seminary. And the work they are doing there with their family as missionaries is, is uh, training gospel ministers training expositors of Scripture to be able to go into the churches and to give the flock of God the Word of God. Because that's what Christ's sheep need, is good pastures of Holy Scripture to chew on and feast on. And that is the work uh, that they are doing there. And that is one of the many reasons why we are supporting them as a church. So this afternoon, they'll be uh, coming to share a little bit about their vision and, and just introduce themselves to you all, to us all, and, and we'll have a time to eat together in fellowship. So please stick around for that. If you didn't know about that, we tried to get it out there and announce it. If you didn't know about it, you do now. So um, if you can't make it, that's all right, but we hope that you will if you can. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. Verses 25 to 43, that is our text for today. Yes, we preach texts, uh, not ideas, uh, not uh, themes and so forth, but we preach texts of Scripture. Scripture is uh, the foundation. Uh, As part of our vision here at Four Corners, we are building on exposition, meaning we're building on the exposition of Holy Scripture, of God's Word, because we believe, as we just sung, in case you're wondering how all this ties together, that When we come to the Bible, God speaks to us. He speaks to us here and now through his word. His word written is his revelation to us. And so we sing, speak, O Lord. And so I pray that that is your heart now, that uh, we're not just coming to some ancient book. We're not just coming to some interesting, intriguing, dramatic, and even disturbing and unsettling stories, as we've seen recently but we are coming to God's revelation to us as his people. So Genesis 30 is where we're at today, verse 25. It is clear what this narrative is all about because of the concluding verse of the section. One of the things we have to do when we come to a passage of Scripture is interpret what it's about. What is this chunk? First of all, how do we divide up the chunks? That's hard sometimes, very difficult in certain instances. But here it's pretty clear that this is a unit. And we know what this narrative is about because of the concluding verse, verse 43. It says this, speaking of Jacob. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. So you may still be scratching your head thinking, okay, so what is this what is this about? Well, this set of verses is dealing very simply with Jacob's prosperity. 
That is what we find. Even the ESV editors have put that at the top of this section. You see that there. If you have an ESV Bible and uh, other translations, I'm sure, have something similar there. Uh, At verse 25, right before that, you have the title for this section. That, By the way, that's not part of the scripture. That's something the editors and translators put in to help us walk through it. And what we have written there is Jacob's prosperity. And yes, that is what this passage is about. But what is the context for this prosperity? Why does it matter that God prospers this man named Jacob who lived 4,000 years ago? Why does it matter that God prospered this man Jacob? And what does that mean for us? That's what we're going to spend our time looking at today. But at least in terms of the context, I think the answer is twofold. Why does it matter? Well, I think it's twofold. First, God is being faithful to Jacob personally. So we saw back in chapter 28, verse 15, this is what the Lord said to him. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So Jacob is leaving his family. He's got only a staff. We learn that later. He says that I left with only a staff. He has only a staff. He's all alone. He's homeless. He doesn't even have a pillow. He lays down on a stone or with a stone next to his head and he's falls to sleep and he has a dream. And in that dream, there's a ladder between heaven and earth and angels are ascending and descending upon it. And the Lord is at the top and speaks to him. And what that dream communicates to Jacob is that the Lord is with him, that heaven and earth are connected and that God is sending his, his messengers, his ministering spirits to help Jacob, that God will be with Jacob. And he goes on to make promises. And then God says it explicitly. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. So when we come to consider Jacob's prosperity, we're working out of the context of these promises that God would be with him, that God would watch over him. So we're seeing personal faithfulness from God as we look at Jacob's prosperity. But there's a second reason this matters. The second part of the context for understanding why we would even be looking at this, and that is that God is being faithful to his covenant with Abraham to bless him and his offspring and to build a nation through them. So what we are witnessing with Jacob's prosperity is the faithfulness of God to continue his plan. As we sit here today, We are recipients, if you're a Christian, you are a recipient of God's great redemptive plan. His great plan of rescue. Any children's Bible that is worth buying is going to focus on the overarching narrative of Scripture. And the overarching narrative of Scripture is that God is doing a redemptive work to bring people to himself in and through Jesus Christ. And that train that is moving through the Bible of God's redemptive plan really has its origins with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with these three men. It goes back, of course, to creation, promises that God made to Adam and Eve. But in a very specific, particular way, it goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so as we are seeing God be faithful to Jacob to prosper him, we are seeing the outworking of a plan that's greater than Jacob. And his seemingly messed up life. 
and some of the strange decisions he has made. I want to say a quick note about prosperity. With the patriarchs, prosperity is a confirmation of God's faithfulness to them. One of the things, and I've said this before, that prosperity preachers err in is that they take God's blessing materially of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they say, if God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob meant material prosperity, then those of us who are descendants of Abraham by faith, and we are, in fact, descendants of Abraham by faith, God blesses us materially too. And that's an error. That's wrong. What we see in the narrative of the patriarchs is that one of the key ways that God confirms his faithfulness to them is through material prosperity. And that's because he's building a very real, earthly, concrete, physical people, a nation. And so we are seeing that play out in their lives. So this prosperity is not to be applied universally, at least not yet. One day, it will be universal when we recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But for now, as Christians, we have no guarantee from the Lord that this life will be filled with riches. Of course not. The Apostle Paul had no such thing. And many throughout the history of the church have lived in very hard circumstances without health, wealth, and prosperity. So we don't come to this narrative of the prosperity. This is important to say in an introduction at the, at, the, at the beginning. We don't come to this narrative and appropriate this one-to-one. We don't appropriate the prosperity that God showed or gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for ourselves in quite this way. And we'll talk about that more as we go. But what I'm saying here is that God is doing a work in Jacob's life as he did in his grandfather, Abraham, and his father, Isaac. So we saw this theme of prosperity with Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 16. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Chapter 24, verse 35. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. So that's a description of what God has done in Abraham's life. Well, then we see the same with Isaac. Chapter 26, verses 12 to 14. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year, during a time of famine, a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich, and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants. So we saw this emphasis. Here's my point if I've lost you. We saw this emphasis in the life of Abraham of part of the way God is working in his life is he is blessing him materially, material prosperity, donkeys and such, right? Camels and donkeys and these kinds of things. We saw that with Isaac. And now today we see it again in the life of Jacob. So the title For the sermon today is another prosperous patriarch. And you might be thinking as we go through Genesis, especially since chapter 12, you might be thinking, man, there's a ton of repetition here. And that's part of the point. 
That's part of the point as we go through Genesis is that we are repeatedly seeing that God does not change. God works with Abraham with this faithfulness according to his promises. So we would expect that God would operate in the very same way with Isaac. And we would expect the same with Jacob. Because God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this is our God. And he is every bit as real to you as he was to Jacob. Every bit as working in your life as he was in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the title, Another Prosperous Patriarch. If you would go ahead and stand for the reading of God's holy word. God's word is perfect and profitable for his people. Chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination. That the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good. Let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth stripes, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. And then here's our summary verse, which tells us what this section is about. Verse 43, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. And that, of course, is a repeat of what we have seen, as I just said, with Abraham and Isaac. You can go ahead and be seated. 
Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. You may be thinking as we were going through this that uh, this is genealogy-esque. Uh, as we're going through the weeds and the speckled and the spotted, it just, you, you just it loses you. Uh, uh, but we see here that there is uh, much to get in terms of who God is and how he relates to his people. So I pray that it will be clear as we go through this today. Let's ask for God's help because we know apart from him, we can do nothing. Father, we humbly submit to you and put ourselves under the authority of your word this morning. We praise you that you have spoken, that we are not left to ourselves as we see in the history of human thought and philosophy. We see man's pursuit of autonomy, of independence, of uh, pursuing his own ideas apart from your revelation of yourself. And Father, this morning, we do not want to be autonomous creatures, rebellious in our thinking. But we pray, Father, that we would be dependent on your revelation of yourself. Father, we pray that we would see ourselves and the world through your light of your word. As we think about Eve, and there she was in the garden, thinking for herself rather than submitting to the authoritative word of her God. So, Lord, we pray that would not be us, that we would not try to come at the world or our own lives in our own strength and in our own wisdom, but rather we would have the wisdom of God, which to the world is folly, and which we know, Father, is perfect and pure and will sustain us. And so we pray, God, for your wisdom from your sacred scripture. We pray that our minds would be conformed to the image of your son, that our lives would be conformed into his image. We pray that you would do your work among us today as we come before your word. Lord, we ask that you would meet each of us where we are in our lives as we know you do. You are merciful. You reach down. You condescend and reach into the muck and mire of our lives. You see our afflictions, you see our sinfulness, and you reach down in Christ into all of that. So much so that Christ became sin for us and sacrificed himself, the spotless lamb, so that we could be forgiven. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, your mercy, your kindness, and we pray that you would show that to us today as you minister to each of our hearts through your word. Would you help me as I explain it, Father? Would it be clear to all of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we watch the Lord prosper Jacob in this passage, which is what we're seeing unfold, as we watch the Lord prosper Jacob here, there are two major things that we need to notice about this prosperity. And you'll see the outline in the bulletin there. The title, Another Prosperous Patriarch. And the two things that we need to notice about this prosperity are, number one, it spills over. And number two, it stands firm. You see that here in these verses. So let's look first at it spills over. So what is going on in the first part of this narrative? The first part Uh, We could take as uh, verses 25 to 36. What is going on in this section of the narrative? Well, Jacob has completed his 14 years of service for Rachel. You'll remember that when he came to stay in Laban's household, Laban is his uncle. 
He's escaping from his brother's hostility. His brother wants to kill him because he tricked his father into giving him the blessing in place of his brother. His father has now given him the blessing and sent him off to get a wife from his uh, distant relatives. He's on his way there. He arrives. He's in Laban's house. And Laban says, what will your wages be? You're living with me. What will your wages be? And he says, he had already fallen head over heels for Laban's daughter, Rachel. He says, I will... I would like Rachel as my wife. I will work for you for seven years to have her as my wife. And so he works for seven years. And at the end of that seven-year period, Laban tricks him and gives him Leah. Wakes up in the morning and it's Leah, not Rachel, the other sister, the other daughter. And so he goes and complains to Laban. And Laban tells him, well, he says, he says if you work for another seven years, I'll go ahead and give you my other daughter also. And so now Jacob has these two wives, Leah and Rachel. And now he has completed his 14 years of service for Rachel. We have seen God's faithfulness in bringing Jacob to have a wife, wives. He has wives. Then we see Jacob getting offspring, children. And that's what we've looked at in these latter two phases of God's faithfulness. And now we come to this portion today. And Jacob has completed his time working for Rachel. The barren Rachel has finally had a child of her own. So as we go back to the previous passage, we see all of these babies being born, but not to Rachel. And finally, at the end, Rachel has Joseph. Now Jacob is ready to leave Laban's household and provide for his own family. He's done. He's finished his service. Even though Laban tricked him and deceived him, he's, Jacob has stayed with it. He has done what he said he would do. And now he wants to leave with his family. He wants to return to the land of his birth and the land promised to him by the Lord. The Lord had promised him in chapter 28, verse 13, the land on which you lie. Remember, he's lying on that stone. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So in light of that promise... And in light of the fact that he's got this family of his own now, he wants to get out from under the headship of Laban and go and have his own life and have his own family in his own land. The land of his birth, the land of his immediate family, and the land that God has promised to give him. So Jacob's words in verses 25 and 26 are straight to the point. Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. You know, this is really sad when you read it because it almost sounds like a bit of slavery. I mean, here is, here is Jacob. He has his family. He has his wives, which are Laban's daughters, and he has his children, which are Laban's grandchildren, but he's still under Laban's headship, part of his clan, part of his family. And he wants to leave with his own family. You see a sense of desperation here with Jacob. He's ready to go and do his own thing. So that is Jacob's desire. Understandable. But we see that Laban has an entirely different idea of what should happen. He doesn't want Jacob to leave at all. He wants Jacob to stay, to stick around and to continue working for him. So Laban is pushy and dismissive of Jacob's concern, pressing Jacob to name his price. Come on, come on. You stay. You stay here under me. Name your price and I'll give it to you. 
name your wages. He wants Jacob to give him a figure for his wages so that he can continue to selfishly benefit from Jacob's work. And so verse 28, name your wages and I will give it. And then even after Jacob persists in his desire to leave, Laban has only one thing to say to him in verse 31. What shall I give you? In other words, Jacob is here basically desperately saying to Laban, look, you know, I've been faithful to you. I've I've kept my end of the agreement, even though you've tricked me, although he doesn't even say that. But that's, of course, in the background. I've done what I said I would do. Now I'm released from working under you. Now let me go. And all Laban can do is push and persist in saying, come on, come on, Jacob. What do you want? What do you want? Implying that he must stay. So Laban has his thumb on Jacob. And what we notice here is that all of this dialogue revolves around two things. Two things. Realization and response. So that's what we're going to spend our time now looking at. All of this dialogue between Laban and Jacob revolves around realization and response. So first, realization. Here, we see realization that God has been with Jacob, blessing his work, prospering his way, and that this blessing has spilled over to Laban. That, has, that is what has happened God has been blessing, prospering Jacob, and there's been a spilling over effect that has happened in the life of Laban. He has prospered because of his proximity to and association with Jacob. So we see this in Laban's mouth, and we see this in Jacob's mouth. So Laban says, verse 27, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination... That the Lord has blessed me because of you. You see that? Because of you. So what do we make of this divination? What does he mean by I have learned by divination? Well, this is some kind of sorcery or a use of omens. You know, watching things, trying to extract some sort of a divine intention from those things. So he has learned by divination that God has blessed him because of Jacob. But some have suggested that the underlying Hebrew here should really be taken, I have become rich rather than I have learned by divination. So there's some dispute here over the Hebrew word. And you can look, you see a little note there in your ESV Bible, probably other translations as well. You see a little note there that will take you down to the bottom of the page and it will say that there's a little bit of uncertainty here as to what he's saying. But the main idea is this. Laban recognizes That he has prospered because of God's prospering of Jacob. He recognizes that prosperity has spilled over Jacob's cup and spilled over into his cup. And then we see it in the mouth of Jacob as well. Verses 29 to 30. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you. Listen to this language. The Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. 
In other words, you get the sense that in, Jacob, in, in Laban's life, wherever there has been herds under Jacob, wherever there has been sheep that are underneath Jacob's care, there's a proliferation. Wherever there has been any sphere that falls under him, it has prospered. It has been blessed. And he's able to even differentiate between those areas perhaps that are not under Jacob's care that have not prospered or, or which have just sort of moved along a natural path and those under Jacob which have boomed. So we see this realization both on the part of Laban and on the part of Jacob. By the way, no divination needed. It's obvious Jacob's words give the sense that there is no need to learn by divination, but it's simply apparent that everywhere Jacob has turned, it has prospered because the Lord has done this work in his life. So we see realization, but now we come to response. How do each of these men respond to this realization of spilling over prosperity? Looking at Laban and looking at Jacob. Well, Jacob, what does he do? What does he respond to this? How does he respond to this realization? He leans into God's faithfulness and acts in faith that God will continue to be with him. So he agrees to stay for a while longer and shepherd Laban's flocks. He recognizes that God has been with him and God will continue to be with him. So even though this is not exactly what he wants to do, he leans into God's faithfulness in light of this realization of God's prospering of him. He leans into God's faithfulness and says, okay, this is what I will do. And so he requests only humble wages. Look at verses 32 to 33. Let me pass through all your flock today removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. So what in the world is going on here? What What do we make of this? Well, sheep are normally white. And goats are normally brown or black. And so Jacob says that he will go through the flock of Laban and take for himself the rarer and fewer animals. So he's asking for something very small. He's saying, I'll take the ones that are not of of one color. I'll take those speckled and those spotted ones and build up my flocks from those. The black lambs and speckled and spotted sheep as well as the spotted and speckled goats. These will be Jacob's. These will be his today. And he will take only these kinds of animals from any future breeding. So what's the point of all of this? Jacob is leaning into God's faithfulness, realizing that God has prospered him and will continue to do so. But what is Laban's response? That's Jacob's response to this obvious happening. What is Laban's response? He agrees, but then he deceives He deceives the blessed man. This is ironic, right? He says, look, I recognize that God, whoever he may be in in Laban's mind, that God has done good to me because of you. Now, let's just think about this in a common sense way. If you think that God is blessing you because of this person, 
the last thing that you're going to want to do is mistreat this person, right? I mean, it just kind of makes sense. That's basic. That's very common sense-oriented logic. But what we see here with Laban is he does just that. He deceives him, verses 35 to 36. But that day, what did Laban do to Jacob? Poor Jacob. He removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. This is the kind of behavior that Jacob would later reflect on when he says to Laban's daughters, your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. The agreement was that Jacob would go and he would gather these speckled and spotted ones from the flock and he would use those to build his own flock. And he would only take those, those rarer and fewer ones and build his flock, his wealth, in terms of animals, from those alone. So what does Laban do? He goes and gets rid of all of those and says, here, you can have the speckled and spotted ones. You just start with Zero of them. So what are some implications of all of this for us? Before we move on to the rest of the story, as we think about this spillover prosperity, what do we do with this for ourselves today? There's a few things I want to identify here by way of application or implication for us today as Christians. First, our good is for God's Glory. As we think about the the spillover of the prosperity that God showed to Jacob and how it spilled over into the life of Laban, I think one of the things that we can extract from this is that our good, that is, any prosperity, blessing that we receive from the Lord in any way, shape, or form, in terms of spiritual development, in terms of God providing opportunities in our lives, in terms of whatever we can we can taste, touch, smell, or see or feel, or consider about our existence. All good in our lives is for God's glory. It is so that God might be seen and known. Now we see that those, some will see and, and, and hear of God and not embrace him. As we'll talk about in a moment with Laban. But what this reminds us of is that God has the intention oftentimes of doing things in our lives in order that those around us might see his glory. That's why we live. We live in this life. That's why we have anything. One shred of clothing. One pair of shoes. One victory in our spiritual life. Whatever it may be, material or immaterial, everything we have is that God might be seen and known. Through his goodness to us. That's why we exist. And that's why we have anything that we have. It's for him. So that's one implication I think we can draw out of this. A second is that you may be experiencing spillover blessings from the Lord. Consider that this morning. You're here. You're not a Christian, perhaps. You may at this very point in your life, you may be experiencing... These spillover blessings from the Lord. In fact, that may be why you're here. You didn't even want to come. 
Someone brought you here. And that's the case for children. I think when Paul says that, that children are sanctified in a believing home, I think that this is related here. It is that in a believing home where at least one of the parents is a believer, there is a kind of spillover blessedness that happens in the life of those children because they are in the home of, an, of a believer. And maybe you're here this morning because God has been good to someone else and you are an indirect recipient. So here's the question for you. If you are a recipient of this spillover, how will you respond? What will you do with this realization? What will you do with this knowledge? What will you do with this indirect spillover blessedness? Will you do as Laban did? Faithlessness and fearlessness. Laban has no fear of God. If he had any fear of God whatsoever, he would not so mistreat God's servant. He would not so mistreat God's blessed man, Jacob. But that is what he does. He has no fear of God. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18, we read Paul describing the sinfulness of human beings. And the problem is not that God has not made himself known. The problem for Laban was not that God did not make himself known. Because God does make himself known. His attributes, his divine power, and eternal nature, everything that God has revealed to us through trees and frogs and stars and the mind of man. God has made himself abundantly clear. I sometimes hear atheists in debates talk about, well, if God wanted us to believe in him, he should make himself clearer. No, he has. He has. And every person will stand before him and give an account for that clear revelation of who he is. What the Bible teaches about the mind of man is that he suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. That, that ultimately unbelief is an ethical matter. It is not an intellectual matter. It is not as though we're just parsing out the facts. We're going with these facts. We're going with those facts. No, every person begins as a suppressor of truth, as a hater of God, because every human being is born into this world loving self and sin and hating God's authority. That goes back to Adam and Eve. Our first parents. And what we see here with Laban. Is it doesn't matter what he sees. He won't respond. Do you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man. Wicked man. Greedy man. Dies and goes to hell. He lifts up his eyes in hell. And he's so thirsty. He wants just a drip of water. And he wants to go back and tell his brothers. Not to come to this awful place. And what does what does Abraham say to him? What does the scripture say here is that even if a man comes back and speaks to them, they will not believe. They have the law and the prophets. They have God's word. How many people saw Jesus' miracles? 5,000 people fed with just a few loaves and fishes. 4,000 people fed. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after four days of being in the tomb. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And the man walked out like a mummy with all these things wrapped around him. They still did not believe. Because it's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of wicked hearts who love self and hate God. And hate his authority. 
And here Laban can see all that he wants. But apart from the grace of God in the heart of this man, he will not believe and submit and follow this God. The God of Jacob. So we see here what happens with these spillover blessings when they are ignored and when they are suppressed. The third As a matter of implication, Jacob is a picture of Christ here. Now get this. In chapter 28, verse 14, the Lord said to Jacob, In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In you, Jacob, there will be spillover for the whole world. In you and your offspring, there will be blessing for every family, every nation of the whole world. And particularly through your offspring, Who is Christ? Christ is the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through whom, through whom, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be blessed. Revelation 5, people from all over the world. One day, I I listened to a podcast that Craig Steffen shared with uh, us recently. And the lady who uh, was talking about reclaiming diversity. She was talking about diversity and she said that the the Christian movement is the greatest movement of diversity in the history of the world. Why? Because one day those who are gathered around the throne of the Lamb of God will be from every tribe, tongue, and nation of the world. Nothing like that has ever existed or ever will. So we recognize that The offspring is Christ. And I think what we can take from that is as Christians, we experience blessings by association. Think about this. Christ is like Jacob and we are like Laban in this respect. That Christ is the blessed man. Hear that. Christ is the one who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the man. Jeremiah 17. Christ is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Psalm 1. Christ is the only blessed man. And we are blessed in so far as we are attached to him. That is the reason why salvation is understood to be at its core. Union with Christ. I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. One flesh, husband and wife. Groom and bride, we are the bride of Christ. We are Christ's body, he is our head. All of this language telling us that apart from association with Christ, apart from proximity to him, apart from being united to him and being found in him, there's no blessing. There's no blessing for any of us. So Jacob here is like Christ and we are like Laban. Everything we have is spillover. Hear that. Everything you have is spillover from God's blessing of his son, the righteous one, Christ Jesus. So we see that this prosperity spills over, but now let's turn to our second point, and that is it stands firm. Look at verses 37 to 43 with me. It stands firm. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees And peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs 
and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now, if after reading this you are confused, scratching your head, that is, from my point of view, very normal. I, reading this through over and over this week and just kind of trying to sort of piece all this out and understand what in the world is going on in these verses and trying to figure out the details of all of this is pretty difficult. But let me start just with this question. Where does Laban's deception leave Jacob? As we pick up in verse 37, let's just ask that basic question. Where does Laban's deception leave Jacob? Well, now... He somehow has to breed, listen to this, he somehow has to breed speckled and spotted animals, because that's the agreement, right? Even though Laban has deceived him, Jacob's part of the agreement was it would only be speckled and spotted, that was speckled and spotted, speckled and spotted that would belong to him. So somehow he has to breed these speckled and spotted animals from sheep that are all white and goats that are all black or brown. This is not impossible given the presence of recessive genes, but it would certainly take a while to build much of a flock at all like this. Laban has basically made it naturally impossible for Jacob to prosper. Naturally impossible for Jacob to prosper. Similar to Sarah, right? Naturally impossible for her to conceive. What will Jacob do? How will he get through this one? Well, what Jacob does in these verses really comes, this is the confusing bit, what Jacob does in these verses really comes from a combination of three things. And this helps us parse it all out. So let me give you these three things that help sort of unpack what's going on here, at least in a, in a basic general way. We have three things working together here. We have superstition, we have experience and we have revelation. Those are three things that are working in this mix of uh, confusion that it seems to be here, uh, in the, for us at least, uh, as we read through these details. So let me look at each of these. One, superstition. Jacob is guided by the erroneous idea that what one sees before mating affects the outcome of the offspring. So this idea of if, if, if one of these animals comes and sees these different colored sticks, the white portion, you tear it off and you see white in the middle, and, and, and then the colored portion of the stick, that he, he kind of stacks these up so that if, if they see these uh, spotted and speckled sticks, then, aha, they will have spotted and speckled offspring. So seeing these while mating at the watering trough will produce speckled offspring. This is really similar to the mandrakes, right? Remember that with Leah and Rachel, that Ra Leah's son went out to get some mandrakes. Now, mandrakes was a fruit in the ancient world that was understood to be an aphrodisiac, but also something that would help women to conceive. And so Leah's got all these mandrakes, and Rachel wants the mandrakes so that she can conceive. The text doesn't say that explicitly, but any reader then would have understood that, given this fruit, 
and its significance in the ancient world. Well, we know that what happens there is not the mandrakes causing anybody to conceive. How do we know that? Well, Rachel doesn't conceive, even though she gets the mandrakes. And Leah does conceive, but it says that the reason she conceived after a time of barrenness was because the Lord listened to her and answered her prayer. It's not because she ate this fruit. It's superstition. Yet God is working in the midst of it. You see that God is working in the midst of human frailty, human folly, human silliness. And that is part of what we have here. We have this superstitious idea that Jacob is using in order to get speckled and spotted animals. Okay, so that's one facet. Now turn it and let's see another facet. And that is experience. So we have superstition, but now we have experience. Based on his experience as a herdsman and his observation of the animals under his care, Jacob is selectively breeding these animals to produce the stronger for himself. So let's cut through what we're reading here and see that there is an element here of experience in being a herdsman. And that's part of what's going on here is selective breeding. And then thirdly is revelation. We'll read in the next chapter, chapter 31, verses 10 to 12. This is what Jacob says. He's talking to his wives. He's about to leave Laban. He's just going to get out of town. And this is what he says. In the breeding season of the flock, he's talking to them about what the Lord did. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. In other words, it really doesn't matter what kind of superstitious tactics Jacob is using. The Lord has seen his plight and the Lord is ensuring that the offspring are spotted and speckled and using Jacob's wisdom as a herdsman to create those kinds of stronger animals or to breed rather those stronger kinds of animals. The Lord has done this, not these silly tactics of Jacob. Just like the Lord is the one who gave Leah offspring and Rachel offspring, despite their silly tactics. So superstition, experience, and revelation all working together here in this account. Hopefully that untangles it a little for each of us. So what's the point of all of this as we move to a close this morning? What's the point of all of this? God's care of Jacob, his blessing on him, his prospering of him cannot be thwarted. It cannot be overcome. It doesn't matter what Laban does. It doesn't matter because the Lord's purposes of prospering Jacob are impenetrable. They cannot be prevented. And that is the point of verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. This did not just happen. And it did not happen because Jacob was really shrewd and wise. That plays a role. God has endowed him with that wisdom and and helped him to be able to do what it is he does do with his experience. The fact is the Lord has done this. Chapter 31, verse 9, Jacob says that explicitly. The next chapter, God, listen to this. God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So that's the bottom line 
all this stuff here that you're reading, God has worked in the midst of this, in some respects despite it, in other respects alongside of it, but all of it because of God's power. Much like we saw at the beginning of all of this with Jacob when he moved that big stone. The text doesn't really give any commentary on that. But here's all these guys gathered at the well and they're waiting on, you know, how many? I don't know, maybe 10 guys or whatever, five guys, at least more than three. And they're waiting on them to get there so that they can move this stone. And Jacob sees Rachel coming. He just moves it himself. What's going on there? Some kind of empowering. But the text doesn't give us much detail. And what we have here is similar. The Lord has done this. This is the blessing of God. So, as we close this morning, what is an implication for us of all of this? Simply this. God's work in the lives of his people stands firm. No matter what the godless will throw at it. The godless will throw many things against God's people. Satan will use many tactics, many ploys, many schemes, as the Bible talks about. The schemes of the devil. Satan is an enemy. He's a real being. If you think you can believe in God without believing in the invisible beings that he's created, that's ridiculous. Satan is a real being. He's a real enemy. The Lord's prayer, we pray, has him in view when it says, deliver us from the evil one, or deliver us from evil that could be taken, deliver us from the evil one. Jesus in John 17, before he leaves his disciples, he says to to protect them from him, the enemy, the God of this world, as he is described. Satan will do many things in your life to dismantle your faith. He will do many things in your life to unsettle you in Christ. So what confidence we have this morning? That the prospering plans of the Lord in our spiritual lives cannot be overthrown by the godless at the hands of Satan. They can't. God will conquer. God has conquered. So what does that mean for us? It's this. We can live lives of obedient faith in the midst of godless people who mistreat us. We can live lives of obedient faith entrusting ourselves into God's hands. Just like Jacob here. We don't need to overcome them on our own or ourselves. We trust in God to do that on our behalf. That way we are freed up to love them. Do you see that? You see how all this fits together? We're freed up to love those who hate us. We're freed up to love our enemies because we trust in a God who overcomes all their tactics against us. We don't have to settle it ourselves. God will do it. He will prosper our way, whatever that may mean. Last night, I watched a little uh, video with my son. There's a series called the Torchlighters series. If you haven't looked at that, it's, it's very good. It goes through and looks at little biographies of, of Christians throughout the centuries and one of the emphases is put on by Voice of the Martyrs. And one of the emphases that it has is those who have suffered uh, for their, their Christian faith. And of course, through watching these, it requires a little bit of wisdom to figure out uh, what, uh, what to show a six-year-old. 
uh, even with these, uh, these cartoons, because they're just disturbing to consider people being burned alive and so forth and trying to be wise in that. But last night we watched of William Tyndale, who was one of the key figures at the beginning of the Reformation in England, who was bringing the English Bible to the people. He wanted the Bible to be in the hearts and minds and hands of every plowman, of every normal, everyday person. And the church wanted only the Bible in Latin. That was the language of the, of the church, the language of, so that the church could control what the people understood about God. But when the English Bible begins to break out, the people, the common people begin to see the, the folly of Roman Catholicism, of its sacramental system, of its understanding of the gospel or the lack thereof of its understanding of Scripture and its authority. And so William Tyndale wanted to get the Scriptures into the hands of all the people. And throughout his life, he was chased until finally he was caught, betrayed, caught, and burned alive at the stake. Did God prosper him? Did God prosper William Tyndale? I read to you this morning from the English Bible. I need say no more. And we know one day the Lord Jesus Christ will come back and raise his burnt up body into a glorious body where he will live with the Lord forever. Yes, emphatically, yes, the Lord did and will eternally prosper William Tyndale. His enemies could not overcome the work of God in his life. We may not feel or see the prosperity that God has given us in this way, in this life, much like William Tyndale. But be sure of this. In the end, the work of God will endure. And our souls and bodies, too, will endure forever in his kingdom. Nothing Satan does can overcome this work of God for his people. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful this morning for your word. We praise you for your prospering of your people. How you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. How you have given us your word, God breathed, that we might be fully equipped, that we may be complete, ready for every good work. Father, you have blessed us immeasurably, even if we must suffer a kind of death like William Tyndale's. And you will bless us immeasurably in the age to come. In ways we cannot even comprehend. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has any heart conceived what you have prepared for your people. Father, we praise you for this. And we know that in this life, you bless us with many things materially too, Father. But that all that we have, materially and immaterially, is for your glory. And we pray, Father, that our good would indeed, in, in practice, be for your glory, as it spills over into the lives of other people, that they might see you and know you through your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.